every time someone says, oh, I know what's mindfulness, they say, mindfulness is knowing what's happening while it's happening in your mind and your body and your emotions to be here now, which was, and I say, it's part, that's one half. That's the first half of the sentence. To know what's coming up, what's in your mind, what's your intention, what's in your heart, how you feel. But that's really crucial to know because otherwise we unconsciously do things that are hurtful to other people. To know what's going on so that the whole second part of the sentence, which is called in Buddhist talk, it's called clear comprehension of purpose. If you see clearly what's happening out here and in here in response to it, then you have clear comprehension of what needs to be done, what needs to be the response in order not to create suffering for myself or others. Check one, two, one, two. Is this thing working? You're listening to Rabbi Ariel Scholklapper, the wisdom and tools you need to thrive. Hi, everybody. This is Rabbi Ariel Scholklapper. I'm here with my teacher, Sylvia Borstein who I'm really excited to present today uh, because she's like the, she's like my, my direct teacher, but also like the teacher of my teachers. So it's an awesome opportunity for you to experience her and to learn from her directly. So I, I, my prayer for our time today uh, is that whatever peace and comfort and tranquility that we are able to find loving kindness and compassion will translate into more ease and safety in our own lives, but then also ripple out into the lives of the people we touch and all things that we touch and ultimately out into the universe. Amen. Thank you. And so now I'll turn it over to Sylvia to lead us in uh, 10 or 15 minutes of practice that we'll do all together. And when we're finished with that meditation, I'll interview Sylvia about how she got to be here and uh, maybe some of the origins of Jewish mindfulness meditation. Sylvia, thank you for being here. I'm glad to be here. And uh, what I'd like for us to do together is uh, really a, a meditation that involves prayer, uh, prayer intentions. It's uh, I was telling somebody recently that how to make a regular phrase or a regular sentence into a blessing uh, is to put the word may in the front of it. May it be so that. And uh, I was 10 years into my practice of mindfulness. And many of you probably have had some introductions into mindfulness. And the classic way of learning to train one's mind so it can discriminate, it can understand what's going on, is to, is to start with training it on the current experience, okay, training it on the breath, coming and going, training it on the body, what the body feels like at this moment. After 10 years, I was introduced to the practice of blessing each moment, meeting every moment with a, a blessing inclination and uh, learning that it was possible. Of course, in, in daily life, one tries to pay attention all the time, but one tries to pay attention in a cordial way, in a, an, in a receptive way, in a curious way, which you can actually 
prepare the mind for by starting with blessings as Rav Ariel did when we started a minute ago. So I'll ask you to sit in a way that's comfortable for you or lie down or stand up or uh, whatever posture you're comfortable being in. And in that posture with your eyes open or closed, feel the sense of being wherever you are right now. Here you are either sitting, probably sitting, maybe lying down if your body requires it. Just for a moment, feel yourself here in this moment being breathed one breath after another. Sometimes I think to myself, I'm alive. I'm here. Here I am. And in whatever posture you are, and in whatever state of body and mind you are, perhaps you feel quite comfortable and relaxed. Perhaps you're not, for some reason, comfortable and relaxed. Maybe you've been rushing, maybe you haven't had breakfast. However you are, I think you probably would like to feel at ease. So the, uh, the blessing to oneself, may I feel comfortable, may I feel at ease, is perfect if we already do, all the more perfect. If we're not quite there, all the more perfect. Everybody wants to feel safe in this moment and at ease. Maybe you could say to yourself in your mind quietly, May I feel safe. May I feel content. May I feel strong. Every time I say that to myself, especially if I'm sitting down, I can feel the invocation to strength make my body sit up a little bit. I feel it in my body. May I feel strong. However old we are and however uh, level of vitality we have, at the peak of that is what we'd like to feel. And may I feel at ease. Those are four things that everybody anytime can feel. May I feel safe. Say that to yourself and feel it echo through your mind and body. May I feel content. May I feel strong. May I feel at ease. Think about somebody that you love very much. I hope you have many people in that category. But first for now, pick out a best beloved person that when you think about, it comes to you easily to say to them, may you feel safe, in your mind, of course. Thinking of them as we do when we bless people, may you feel safe, 
May you feel content. May you feel strong. May you be at ease. I'm hopeful that you'll notice that even as you wish those things for someone else, they come through your very own heart and mind. So you feel them in your body as you wish them for someone else. Think about someone else that you love. May you feel safe. May you feel content. May you feel strong. May you feel at ease. Think of all your family, near and far. Sometimes there's even somebody in your family that you're a little bit in a maybe not relaxed relationship right now. Think of your whole family. You'd like them to be well. Wish for them. May you feel safe, all of you. May you feel content. May you feel strong. May you feel at ease. Think about your community, the people you work with, the people you pass in your neighborhood, people who live in your building, if you live in a big building. Some of them you know, some of them you don't know. They're people that you'd recognize. For all the people that you recognize, may they feel safe. May they feel content. May they feel strong, able to meet the day. And may they feel at ease. Sometimes when we think about the community of people that we recognize, we might realize that we don't feel the same affection for all of them. Maybe you think of somebody and you think, ah, oh, you don't have affection really come up at all. But the mind and the heart wishing well feels good. So my experience is that the mind kind of goes along with it, okay. May everyone feel safe and content and strong and live with ease.
And if your eyes are open, maybe you want to close them and think about yourself being a center point in the whole world, like a hub city on an airline. And think about all the routes out from you, east and west and north and south. And just as in a flight magazine, they show you all the routes of all the airplanes, all the directions all around this planet of ours, of all people near and far. Especially in these days when the world is imperiled by this continuing virus and the planet is imperiled and we all are concerned about it and everybody lives on this planet. And see how it feels to think about all the people on it, east and west and north and south, sharing with us the future of living on this world and wish for us all, may all beings feel safe. May they feel content. Really means may they know what's happening, but may they be concerned and hopeful that they can change what needs to be changed. May all beings feel strong. May they not feel hopeless is what that means. May they feel that although the problems facing the whole world are substantial, that hope and goodwill can make a difference. And may all beings everywhere be at ease. May this be a world, a planet of peace. Aleinu ve'akol Yisrael ve'akol Yoshevi Tevel for us and for all the inhabitants of the earth. Before you open your eyes, take a moment to feel your body and your mind. It's always clear to me that the principal beneficiary of my goodwill is myself. And that when my mind and my heart are free from enmity, 
I am feeling safe and strong and peaceful and content and at ease. And then, if you want to, open your eyes. I'll even ring a bell. Thank you. You're welcome. I invite you, if you don't already have a smile on your face, to put one on your face. <laughs> <laughs> for anyone following along just uh that's a practice that i think is so valuable you can choose your how you can't choose how you feel necessarily but you can choose the posture right so i've been thinking about that since Thich Han died last week because that was a particular practice that he emphasized he would say to a group of people that he was teaching to meditate he would say first of all smile and then he would go on with the instructions and people sometimes uh, uh, spoke out about that and they said i don't like that you say that because what if you say smile and i'm not happy that wouldn't be it would be counter to i'm not happy and Thich Nhat Hanh would always respond i just said smile i didn't say be happy just said smile he said because if you do it relaxes all the muscles of your face. So you might have more of a chance of possibly being relaxed and happy. And uh, it might remind you of a time that you were happy. And so you might remember that happiness is a possibility for human beings. And you might be able to do that again. So it's good for you to smile. So yeah, I'm happy you brought that up. Yeah, thank you. That's one of my uh... It's like my gift to myself because not every meditation session I have is equally pleasant. You know, I don't always have bliss. Sometimes it's not the easiest. And so I, I always remember to give myself a little bit of that kind of like cherry on top, some kind of reward to remind myself that, you know, it's a process. Well, sometimes if I sometimes if I forget to say that when I'm just doing instructions. And I look out and I see a room full of people and everybody looks grim and like they're really working. I'll suddenly say, smile. <laughs> this yeah. is not meant to be grim. I mean, sometimes one discovers in meditation all kinds of things that are startling and memories. And maybe there's a, a news that you're trying to process that you're not happy about, or there's a pain in your body or mind, excuse me, that you're not happy about. But you could smile. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I think it's important. I think this whole practice, the, what I've learned from you and others and, and in my own time is that this practice is meant to be supportive of a joyful life, of a, <laughs> of a life that, you know, it's not meant to be to kind of make us grim about, yeah. about things. It's meant to be hopeful, bring, give us some hope and buoyancy and give us that uplift that we need to deal with the inevitable right. difficulty of right. life. Right, right. But if I think about it, actually, uh, when I, uh, the most recent talit that I made for myself, when I embroidered, as people do around the Atara, you, you embroider some 
uh, blessing or and what I embroidered onto mine is Simcha, praise God with joy. That doesn't mean that there isn't gonna be stuff in your life that you don't feel like you wanna praise, but I think it's a reminder that, you know, we can still be here and, you know, it's a, it's a great blessing to still be alive. So if you get a big enough container around it, you say, okay, this is happening, but I still have the possibility that it'll change. No, it's not even a possibility. I have the inevitability that it will change. It will definitely change, which is really what is the the a central point of discovery in I think in in a religious life that things change, and there isn't anything but the moment. Sometimes, sometimes people will say, "Try to live in the moment." That's the only time we can live in the moment because everything else is a fantasy or a memory. So uh, here we are. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I, I want to share with people before we went live, we discussed my bald head <laughs> for a moment and, and your kind of hidden desire. I hope I'm not outing you. Hidden desire to become a, to a nun many years ago and dedicate yourself to Buddhist practice, though you are, right? You're a you, you have really dedicated yourself, but I, I think I, I, I want to share that the reason I, I shave my head is because I met a nun who grew up Jewish, couldn't find the contemplative within Jewish practice, and ended up taking, taking robes, taking robes, shaving her head, becoming uh, in the lineage of the Dalai Lama, a nun. And years later, when she was in her 70s, found a, came upon a Jewish mindfulness gathering where they were practicing meditation. And she thought, she said, thought to herself, if, I, if this had existed when I was growing up, I may never have taken robes. I may never have become a nun. And it brings me to this question that I'm, I'm wondering, like, what was it when you, when you ended up Maybe you can tell us about how the Jewish mindfulness practice ended up starting, because I know that you started in the Buddhist world uh, meditating, and you never really gave up your Jewish identity or connection, but somehow something within you or outside of you like pushed you to start teaching this practice, these meditation Buddhist practices in a Jewish context curious about that formation i mean for me that's central it's why i'm teaching this it's because i i know there's so many people who have gone to other routes because we hadn't integrated this into the jewish framework and maybe it just wasn't the time yet and uh but and now and now it is it's because uh uh well i'll, I'll start i'll i'll really directly answer your question uh First of all, I, 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 I think central to my, my, my whole story is the fact that I grew up in a Jewish family that liked to be Jewish uh, and enjoyed being Jews and was uh, observant. I spent um, most Saturday mornings in shul with my grandmother and those were pleasant times for me. Uh, and uh, so that really set a, a tone for me and uh, my 
my my my family operated on a Jewish calendar, and we had Shabbat, and we had holidays, and I went to uh, I went to um, a Yiddish folk shula, so I learned uh, I learned how to write in in Yiddish uh, because that's what girls did back. In, in, I'm 85 years old now, so when I was in the age that uh, people start to go to religious school now and start to read Hebrew. Girls didn't do that, so uh, uh, and people who wanted their children uh, to uh, learn to speak and uh, write and uh, well more to write because my family, uh, my grandparents spoke Yiddish. I lived in a very Jewish culture, and I enjoyed it. I had a good time. I liked all that stuff. And uh, when I was an adult. Uh, specifically in the 1970s, when uh, uh, contemplative practice began to be uh, mainstream, or, or started to be mainstream, really started to be mainstream in the West, and people were going to meditation weekends in TM and in this and in that and in other kinds of practices. Uh, it was vogueish, and uh, everybody wanted to do that. Uh, I actually didn't want so much to do that in the 1970s. I was uh, I was married. I had four children. I had um, a social work degree. I had a full time job. <laughs> I I was happy. My family was a Jewish family, but um, I didn't feel myself. I felt anxious. I had lots of things that I was anxious about, and uh, the more that my children were growing up and the more I had people who were dear to me, the more uh, anxiety I had. And no one ever said, uh, why don't you practice mindfulness, you'll have less anxiety, uh, which is another thing we can talk about, whether or not you have less anxiety. But uh, uh, mindfulness was vogueish. it was in. Everybody who was hip was doing it. It was in the 1970s. So my husband came home from a mindfulness retreat and he said, this is it, so you should try this. And I went and I tried it and I actually had a lovely time. I had a, a lovely time when I wasn't in pain from the caffeine withdrawal because nobody told me they didn't serve coffee at retreats. Now they do, by the way. And I was in pain from sitting still with my body for long periods of time, which was also strange because I was, in addition to my job, I was a yoga teacher. So I thought, well, the body, and I was young. I thought my body is going to be a piece of cake. This is going to be easy. But my whole body was tense and hurt and, uh, and my head hurt. But I really discovered that my mind began to relax because I was in a quiet situation with people sitting quietly as if they were acting out equanimity. Who knows what was going on in other people's minds, actually. But I was having periods of relative equanimity. Nothing's going on. I'm not reading the newspaper. I'm not hearing the news. My children aren't there. My, my husband isn't there. And every once in a while, my mind would just settle down. And when it was a little bit settled down, my teachers would give talks explaining how with, with continued practice, uh, not taming the mind, but really becoming aware of it 
and noticing what goes on in the mind all day long. It's so busy worrying about this and planning this and figuring out that, and that one could, with practice, make the mind less busy and, as a result, less anxious. That you could discover that you're telling yourself the same story ten times. Say, you don't have to do that. You thought about that already. That my mind would start to relax. I started to feel better. I could talk a whole lot about that, but we have limited time, so I'll go on. I really like going on retreats. You say, well, you were away from your family. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Poor kid. Uh, <laughs> but it, you know, it's not a picnic, actually, being on a retreat, sitting for long. Uh, Rav Ariel can tell you, you sit for long periods of time. And not only the mind becomes pleasant and a little bit spacious, it also discovers old grudges and old feelings and old memories. And you cannot say, don't tell me that, don't tell me this, this I don't want to know, because it all comes up. And what you begin to practice from the beginning is, may I be content. That's the very act of not getting up off your chair and going away is a, is a, uh, a manifestation of, may I feel safe and may I feel content, may I not fight with this moment. So you begin to see that that's a possibility to cultivate that kind of mind. So I, and as I began to really feel better, I went to lots of retreats. It's a time to really uh, say how fortunate I was that my husband was ready to take over our household if I went away for a week, sometimes for two weeks, not for very long periods of time, as sometimes people think. Uh, so this is a moment to say, I do not think you have to disrupt your life in a big way. I don't think you have to take a sabbatical. I think that people can practice daily in their homes and a couple of times a year on retreat, maybe. And every Shabbat could be a, re a, a retreat for you. Anyway, I began to notice that every once in a while, my mind really felt good. And I began to think spontaneously uh, I remember uh, sitting in a quiet room full of meditators, all sitting, 100 people sitting quietly. Who knows what's going on in their mind? Maybe it's a turmoil. But at least they're all sitting quietly. And it's soothing to the body and soothing to the mind. And suddenly, in the middle of realizing that, I would think to myself, Behold how pleasant it is to sit together with kin. And uh, what I discovered, I could have thought to myself, this is very pleasant, but I began to discover that my mind spontaneously would think in terms of a line from Psalms or uh, a line of prayer. Um, now that could not have happened if I had not had my background. Uh, I have to have had that I think of it as wallpaper in my mind. <laughs> that was the wallpaper in my mind so that when I sat, I could think that. And when I was feeling very good and I came to a meal and I was hungry and I'd look at the food and it, it uh, was invariably beautifully presented and smelled good and I felt happy, then I felt like making a bracha before it, saying a blessing before I ate, because I knew them. And I was certainly out of practice of 
saying them, but I had them in the wallpaper. And I had them in the wallpaper when I finished the meal as well, that there was something I could say. And uh, I began, the most mysterious part of it was I began to think of my experience by and by as I was practicing. I'd had some experience that would be an unusual mind state of profound peace or uh, really uh, having a wide idea, sense of the whole world being vibrant and all around me. And I would think of scenes out of stories that I knew from my childhood so that I certainly wasn't a, a, a Torah scholar, but I knew enough of the stories that went with my upbringing to say, oh, this is just like, and this is just like, and suddenly I felt myself manifesting myself uh, as a manifesting and talking about my experience as, uh, as, I, as uh, a person who saw through the lens of Judaism. So it wasn't, uh, I had the wallpaper there and I needed better glasses, I suppose might be. And yeah. somehow, does that make sense to you? Yeah, something about the practice like there was a, it was like intellectually, you knew all these other phrases and prayers and stories and blessings. And they didn't, it's like almost like they weren't activated and the meditation calmed you, soothed you, brought you to a, a, a state of gratitude in, in which the language you had for expressing that gratitude or that wonder or that excitement came through in the Jewish language that you had grown up with, that you had been steeped in, that for whatever reason didn't integrate into your life, but this kind of gave you like a, almost like a glue or something, or a catalyst but, or something. You know, the truth is that I had been all of my life uh, doing, this, doing the things that one does, lighting Shabbat candles, all of that. But what really did come together, uh, what really did come together was the feeling of doing that out of a feeling of gratitude or a feeling of awe or a feeling of, uh, well, gratitude, thanksgiving, or it's amazing to have made it another week. And here are my people that I care about and that I love, and they're still here. Praise God. Look at that. This happened. Uh, it was like more spontaneous rather than prescribed. That's right. That was what, that was the piece that wasn't just uh, a folk thing that you had to do or needed to do or was quaint to do, but that had became, that the, those things became significant. You know what else I just realized? Uh, here it's been all these years now, and now it is very, very usual on the, uh, in Buddhist retreats on Friday afternoon, people uh, materialize <laughs> with their candles, uh, at, with their screwed together Shabbat candles that they brought with them, or the, the, the retreat center will often put out for people who come and say, I forgot my candles, I'll give them votives. So somewhere on, on Friday afternoon, 
around the time of candlelighting, uh, the people who had it in mind will congregate in, say, the a corner of the dining room and quietly light candles together. And it's interesting because just as we were talking about it right now, I realized that here come these um, people who already are candle lighters who now are moved because it's Friday and because they plan to do it to light the candles. I don't know that everybody feels equally uplifted and everybody is thinking the same thing, but they've all planned to do it and they're doing it. And I find that there's something so evocative about the experience of lighting candles together in a group that even it's happening quietly, other people who might or might not be Jews start to congregate around because uh, it, it draws them. It's an evocative uh, ritual. Yes. So whether or not they're Jews, whether or not they know what's going on, there are people congregating around. People light candles all quietly by themselves. And then they go, then they go pick up their dinner and sit down and have dinner. And that's all it is. But um, it's such an interesting way of like, there, there's a lot of Jewish people in the meditative sphere or candlelighters or whatever you want to call it, right? Like they're in the Buddhist uh, world, which I guess brings me to the next piece of this. Uh, do, do you remember when Zalman approached you uh, or, or you ended up teaching at Eilat Chaim and and what what was the like what was the the thought process behind that how were you how did you begin what did or what did you think was going to come of it at the time oh you know i i don't know if i knew but um i knew reb zalman i had met him earlier i met him I'd have to think when it was, but it was before Elat Chaim, and it was before he moved to Philadelphia. He was still in uh, uh, in uh, uh, in Canada, and he came to teach a class in Latanya, uh, uh, at in Berkeley in the Hillel that my husband was interested in going to, and I went to. And it's a good story because it has to do in an oblique way with my discovery of what it means to be in an experience rather than observing it or apart from it. Anyway, I went with my husband to this couple of day workshop on a mystical uh, treatise in uh, a, a Jewish mystical treatise and uh, on, I remember on the first day, somewhere in the afternoon, things are going along, and suddenly some he says, "Oh, it's time to daven mincha," and which is the afternoon prayer, and he stands up, and we all stand up, and even at the time at the time I was not so familiar with mincha, but everybody it's a short prayer you can easily do it by memory. And he turns facing east, and we were all already standing facing east. I could not see his face, but I could hear him in a loud voice saying the Mincha prayers out loud. And uh, I had the distinct feeling 
as he's saying the prayers, that somehow, I, I don't even know, but I, the thought that I had is he really means this. The, uh, I, I wish I could transmit to people the, the feeling that I had, because I couldn't even see the front of him. I could only see his arms moving in him with his loud voice. And I thought to myself, uh, he really means it. And I, you know, I don't mind to cast aspersions or even seem obliquely to do it. But I think about, there aren't that many times that I think that whoever is leading the service really means it, that they're in it, that this is real. Uh, <laughs> that's yeah. the name of a book by Alan Liu. This is real. This is not, uh, uh, you know, this is not a ritual. This is real. And I thought, oh, look at this. Here's a, a, a grown-up, intellectual, educated, talented, uh, charismatic, whatever I thought about him, man. And he is, he really, he's really with this. And I thought, oh, that did something for me. Does it for you? Ariel, when I tell yeah. you that story. Yeah, yeah. I'm think I'm like thinking about times when I've had a similar experience of and it's rare. Yeah. That I've felt like it's not just a show or it's not just we're not just saying all the words or we're, you know, we're not just getting through it. That whoever yeah. is there leading it, it's palpable. You can feel it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I it's, it's not that and in oneself when one says prayers. Yeah. Sometimes you just say, and sometimes you really. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes you're like, this is really being communicated. Yeah, this is, and you know, this is this is my whole self here, not the, my audio self <laughs> and my separate self who's thinking about how it's coming across or whatever. So yeah, uh, yeah I feel that way when I teach. Sometimes I mean, I can. I don't know if you get that feeling when you're flowing. I do. Almost like I do. Altered state kind of. I feel like somehow what's coming out of me is not mediated. Uh, you know, I'm not thinking about it. Like I'm not right now, I'm not thinking about it. You ask something yeah. and it comes out from me. You prepared you prepared whatever you prepared, and then in the moment of it's like there's an editor inside that's gonna gotta Decide what to say, what not to say. Sometimes I surprise myself. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I stop myself and I say, oh, that's the best way I've ever said that description. So now I wonder what I just said, because that was really good. <laughs> <laughs> Get the recording. <laughs> and for anybody who wants to hear Sylvia teaching, you can always jump on Dharma Seed. Um, is it .org or .net? Dharma Seed, uh, well, I'll put it in the notes, but it's Dharma Seed has a collection of probably hundreds of talks of yours. So, really, they're in they're in a pile back there on those special um, what do you call those discs where they can cram in a, a lot of things in one disc. CDs, something that anyway, they uh, Dharma Seed recent not recently ten years ago sent me of the oh, a hard drive maybe the complete works of, and uh, uh, when my husband was still alive, when we talked about things, I would say, you know, if uh, if I die before you do, 
you could listen to me every day for a year. <laughs> <laughs> Endless talking. But now he's gone. We've actually passed his first yard site this last week. Wow. Wow. That's a big one. You were together for what, 50 years? Oh, that More. was beginning. 65, 66. Wow. Yeah. And he I was met when I was 15. Wow. So, Young. Yes. Uh, I would, that was, that was a very big piece of luck. Yeah. I mean, yeah. sometimes things come from without our, our planning and real great, you know, brain power, just, we get lucky. Yeah. So one of the things that occurs to me is that I know from knowing you that this whole practice is not just about meditating and sitting and being passive. It's also about advocacy it's also about trying to um, make this world a better place. Yeah. You, you talked about that a little bit in, in the meditation that we started with. I'm curious how, do you, how you think about that. I think a lot of times people have a vision of meditators as passive, as yeah. just accepting whatever it is as it is, and that's fine. And I think that there's a different way that you're approaching it. From the beginning, it seems to me, uh, and... Uh, uh, this is a, I'm so glad you brought it up because it comes up every time someone says, oh, I know what's mindfulness. They say, mindfulness is knowing what's happening while it's happening in your mind and your body and your emotions to be here now, which was, and I say it's part, that's one half. That's the first half of the sentence to know what's coming up, what's in your mind, what's your intention what's in your heart, how you feel. But that's really crucial to know because otherwise we unconsciously do things that are hurtful to other people. To know what's going on so that the whole second part of the sentence, which is called in Buddhist talk, it's called clear comprehension of purpose. If you see clearly what's happening out here and in here in response to it, then you have clear comprehension of what needs to be done, what needs to be the response in order not to create suffering for myself or others. It's completely in order not to make this life, which is already difficult for everybody. You know, sometimes people think Buddhism is so gloomy. It really talks about suffering all the time. It doesn't <laughs> talk about suffering all the time, but the real other truth of it is that life is really a bumpy ride it's from the beginning to the end. It's life comes with pain and suffering. Pain, no, life comes with pain and difficulty. And the, the Buddha said, here are four things to know. These four things, by the way, are universal and non-parochial. They're not Buddhist credos. They are just what's true. Life comes with pain and difficulty, it does. And the second of the truths is we often make the pain or the difficulty worse by a maladaptive response to what's going on or by insisting that it be other. No, this shouldn't happen. It's not my way. What can I, you know, I don't like this. I, I want more of that, but less of this. We make it worse by our response. And the third of those truths, uh, according to the Buddha, is we don't have to that's a very simple truth. It's possible for the mind to be at ease. It doesn't mean that it's pleased. 
uh, or happy about what's going on, but it doesn't have to make itself worse agitated or aggravated to say, okay, this is happening. And the the fourth of those truths, there are actually three truths, that, those are they. The fourth is you could train your mind so it could do that. I love that. It says, uh, you know, that you could make yourself a mind that would say, all right, what do I do now? This is really terrible. I'm really depressed. I'm really unhappy. Uh, these are difficult days for us. I mean, uh, I don't have to tell anybody who's listening that this is a very hard time in the history of in the planet. It's the worst because of the degradation of the planet and the continuing uh, assault on the planet because of climate change, but also the the virus that's still going on and the numbers of people who are in wars or who are uh, um, displaced persons now, some enormous number of people who don't have a place, who are without a place that they can live and say, this is where I live comfortably. Enormous number of refugees all over the world. Not to speak of in our very own cities, there are lots of difficulties, and in our very own families. We make things worse by being stuck in grudges or animosities. To be able to say, that really what mindfulness is about is about being clear-headed so that we can make better decisions and save the planet before it's altogether not functional. And I think to myself about, I have great-grandchildren. I have two great-grandchildren. They're going to live a long time. And I hope in a better planet. So it's not, it's not about us at this point. It's about the children and their children and... When I was growing up, there were perils in the world, and it was, you know, even before the start of World War II. But nobody ever thought that the planet would end. So that but this is a very t important time to be able to be thinking that unless we, as a as a planet, change our minds, um, literally change our minds. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so it's not just to sit and to just feel good. It's to to sit and cultivate a certain kind of wisdom about what will be wise, what will be more helpful, and what's less helpful. What are the ways in which we are greedy or um, or push away discomfort, even when it's probably better for us long term, and we don't hang in there to just go through the difficulty. Or we just try to get something we like more and more and more until we, until we like hurt ourselves, you know, with yeah, addiction yeah. and all kinds of other ways. Yeah, and we do that. We're ruining the planet, right? We're, there's there's consequences. It's not just that it's hurting us internally; is yeah. that there's there's real implications of those ways of being. And yeah. so this is sort of saying, okay, I'm aware of that now. I'm aware of these tendencies. I'm aware of the way that my life is unfolding and that I want what I want and what I don't want and all these other things, but that's not the best way. So I'm yeah. actually going to choose something that's a little bit different than what I might kind of automatically do yeah. for and forgo that for something that's a little bit of a higher value. 
of, yeah. of just like one moment at a time and hopefully that shifts the momentum of things yeah yeah i think about that that um when we think about it if everybody would stop and think about if i could just take the animosity out of my own mind i don't have to be mad at my my cousins that i don't invite anymore because to my house because they uh they vote differently from me or uh, my neighbors who vote differently from the way i do that if i could in, in my local sphere i don't have to agree with them but i don't have to vilify them in my mind if i can say the whole world together myself as well everybody needs to wake up and say let's just for a minute invite each other to dinner and take care of each other and stop killing each other and killing the planet yeah. for the benefit of everybody because you can't do anything that doesn't affect everybody now the uh, the teachings about uh you know it doesn't depend on me altogether but it does depend i'm not in charge but it depends on everybody being part of the change. You can't, you can't opt out. You can't say, let me know when it's over. Uh, right? It's not for you, up to you to do the whole thing, but you can't also throw up your hands and say, I, it's not about me. That's it. It's about everybody and the nearest persons to you. So... Thank you so much for spending the time with me today and with all of us. And what's your prayer that you want to leave us with your, uh, for our time, for, for your hope for the, the future of, of the planet, of Jewish practice, or whatever? What's your prayer? May the time not be distant when everybody collectively looks around and says, whoa, we have to do it differently. We have to start out by taking all the enmity out of our own hearts and say, we are all fellow travelers. We are all family. We are the family of human beings uh, that live on this incredible earth. And we have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Let's take care of them communally. Let's take care of them until they grow up and figure out how to refresh the waters and refresh and rejuvenate the land and find cures for viruses and make life on earth really as amazing and beautiful and sustainable for all the inhabitants of it. May I call Yoshve Tevel, Amen. Thank you, Sylvia. What a pleasure. Thank you so yeah. much for inviting me. Likewise. To stay updated on new episodes, subscribe on iTunes or follow on Facebook.com slash Rabbi Shulk. That's Rabbi Shulk, R-A-B-B-I-S-H-O-L-K. Hey, so if you're really serious about this, come on down to RavAriel.com. That's www.rav. A-R-I-E-L dot com. Take our free trial, do the self-learn path or try group coaching or even come apply to work with me one-on-one. And you'll give yourself the accountability and the support 
and the step-by-step path that you need to feel calmer, more mindful, and happier with your life. So come on down, www.rave.com. See you there.